Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, September 27th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org. And if you don't already, you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. For the show this week, I did an interview with Alan Wiseman. He's the best-selling author of the book, The World Without Us. A lot of our listeners will have read that book. And he is just out with a new, very, very thought-provoking book, which is called Countdown, which is about how many people, and how many people doing what, how are they living, how many people can the planet sustain? And I know this is going to be controversial, but it's actually a very balanced and nuanced book. And here's a little bit of a short clip from the interview. Population is a loaded topic, and people who otherwise know better, great environmentalists, oftentimes are very, very, very... uh, timid about going there. And I decided as a journalist, I should go there and find out, is it really a problem? And so is there anything acceptable that we can do about it? Okay, so first we're going to start off with what's in the news a little bit. This show is airing on a very, very big day for climate change science. It's the day that the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change which is the world's leading authority on climate change, releases what's called its fifth assessment report. They only do these once every five or six years where they assess all the science, all the knowledge. That's what the IPCC is. And hundreds of scientists contribute to this. And lots of people try to attack this. In fact, they try to attack it before it's even come out. So, Indre, there's all these falsehoods out there. And the the biggest one is they're saying climate change deniers, climate change skeptics are saying global warming has stopped. And it's so not the case. They're not understanding that the Earth is a a system, an energy system, and it's taking in more energy that's going out again, but it goes all different places in the planet. And researchers are showing that there's a lot more heat going into the deep ocean, which is the top place that heat goes. So it didn't stop. It just went into the ocean. Sure. And of course, the irony is that global warming might not always manifest in every place as a temperature increase, right? You know, there could be more storms or more uh, volatile conditions, which could lead to a temporary decrease in temperature or so on. So, you know, I, th- I think you're exactly right in that we need to look at the whole system. Um, and then, of course, there you know, it's such a complicated phenomenon, and it's measurable in so many different ways using t- so many different measures, which 
makes it a really great topic for science to study because we really want to look at converging evidence from multiple sources, not just from one way of looking at it. But that also leaves it ripe for cherry picking because, of course, if one measure comes up with something that's slightly contradictory, people will jump on that if they really want to confirm their denial. Yes. And so scientists are in a very difficult position here because they can't say, it's true, the rate of increase slowed over the last 10 years. It's not a big deal. Uh, you know, it's not like it's global warming stopped, but the rate of increase slowed. They can't say it didn't. Uh, but as soon as they say that it did, then it gets quoted to mean things that it doesn't against them. Uh, and they have to be honest about that. And then they're in a trap. And it, it, does, it hurts them even more that the, the document that's going to come out uh, as we record this, it's not actually out yet. It will be on Friday. But it's been leaked for over a month. And so people are able to quote them out of context in any way they want. And they don't even get to say that's their final word yet. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if anything in the new, in the one that actually comes out will have any rebuttals to some of the points that people are making. Um, you know, part of me wonders, is that almost maybe one of the reasons it gets leaked is to start to see what are the re- places where things are not clear or where people are going to take an issue um, so that the scientists can respond to that before the, you know. It gets into so many hands that I think leaking is uh, hard to avoid. It's just scientists are punching with one hand behind their back because they're trying to give all of the nuance and all the uncertainty. And so they both say they're 95 percent certain that humans are causing global warming. But then there's lots of things that they're not as certain about. So they say that and then people take it out of context. But they also don't help themselves. They're releasing the report on a Friday, which everybody in, you know, public relations 101 knows is bad public relations. So, uh, well, at least they didn't release it in August. (laughs) (laughs) So so that's what's happening now. And uh, we're going to be obviously tracking that. And the interview uh, that you'll hear in a bit with Alan Wiseman goes into climate change, but goes into it from an angle that people are afraid of, which is by talking about one of the key factors that drives it all, which is how many people on the planet need energy. Yeah, I remember that overpopulation was a really hot topic when I was in high school. And then it kind of got eclipsed by global warming and, and it hasn't come up in, in recent conversation. We will explain to you why that Excellent. happened, actually. So, Chris, I wanted to talk to you about another topic that's been on my mind lately and has made the news, and that is gene therapy. Um, Recently, there was a trial for a new type of gene therapy called exon skipping. Right, which is a means going to Shell rather, or BP rather than Exxon, right? <laughs> no, it actually has nothing to do with global warming or the oil or anything like that. An Exxon is a part of the genetic code that actually is the information needed to build a protein, um, as opposed to introns, which are other parts of the code that are not involved in building proteins. So um, what happens sometimes in certain diseases is that there is a error in a genetic part of the code, in a genetic in the exon part of the code, that causes a, a protein to either not get manufactured or manufactured improperly. And one way in which we can combat um, the effects of these diseases is possibly by skipping over that sort of bad section and creating a protein that maybe isn't perfect, but is good enough. So one disease in which this has been a potential therapeutic solution for is Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It's a debilitating disease, 15,000 boys primarily in the U.S. get it every year. Um, 
and they die by the time they're in their 20s because it's quite a, a devastating disease. Now, there's a milder version of, of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, um, well, it's a, it's a related disease called Becker muscular dystrophy, which in which the protein is not quite as poorly um, manufactured. And so... The idea of this gene therapy was to try to make the the protein that gets formed in these boys um, and and girls to look more like the one that's in the children with with Becker's, and so just to make their lives a little bit better. It's not a cure, but it certainly is a better treatment. It's a milder form. Now, the problem is is that a trial just came out recently, uh, last Friday actually, in which there was no evidence that this particular, this one drug, um, dries a person, worked in these in these kids. So they didn't show any of the milestones that we wanted to see in terms of their, um, you know, staving off the disease. But the, And this kind of raises the question, because there's a New York Times article about this where they talk about a woman whose son has actually another um, treatment, a, a sort of a, a, a similar idea, but a different drug. And she really is seeing some effect in her son. And she doesn't want that drug to be stopped, even if there's a clinical trial that comes out to show over the course of a larger population, there's no effect. And this really struck me because, of course... You know, it's a devastating disease. We want to help these kids as much as we can. And if there's one kid that can be helped, you know, that seems like ethically the right thing to do. But on the other hand, we're coming into an era of personalized medicine where, you know, your genetic code is going to be sequenced probably multiple times over your lifetime as we learn more about epigenetics and how our genes change with time. Mine might break the machine, though, so... know about that. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, But, you know, it's getting less and less expensive. It's getting more and more important, especially in the treatment of these sort of quote-unquote genetic diseases like cancer, which um, really target a number of genes and really can be gene-specific in terms of their their potential treatments. Um, So even in this case of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, it's not always the same part of the gene that is affected in all of these patients. Um, There are different parts of, of the gene, and so they try to find a therapy that works for most most people or most patients, but you know they're never going to hit all of them. And and the question that I wanted to ask you to to talk a little bit about is, you know, how should we really think about paying for these therapies that are going to be more and more personalized, um, especially at a time when you know one of the biggest debates on the Hill is uh, the Affordable Care Act, um, where we're we're trying to. You know, what we're trying to do is get a system in which we pay for um, health care in a bulk model, right? Um, it's why people go to Costco. They have the false belief that if they buy in bulk, it'll be cheaper. Well, you know, for health care, that could really be true. Um, and yet if we're going towards this personalized place in therapy, you know, what does this mean? Well, I think the first issue is, does the personalized approach work? I mean, you, I, I don't know about the case. Uh, it's in the New York Times, but... We certainly know that the reason we have double-blind controlled clinical trials is because people trick themselves mm-hmm. uh, and think they're getting better or they fulfill wishes, they think their son is getting better. So whether the drug is working or not, I don't know, but you can't necessarily you know, take one. It's an N of one, right, you guys say in science, so right. we don't really know, uh, and that's why you have to do trials to begin with. But uh, so, the, so there's one issue is proving it's going to be harder science to prove things work personalized right? Because it's going to be a smaller sample. So that's going to be the first thing. And then it's going to be more expensive science too. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think in the end, we still have to look to science to see if these things are effective. So you're right, we need to have double blind controlled, you know, studies. And we can't just go on the basis of one parent or one child, you know, claiming a benefit, because of course, we know the placebo is strong. And the more we believe in medicine, the stronger the placebo effect is getting. Um, But at the same time, for me, the question really is, you know, how are we going to pay for it? Um, Because, you know, these treatments are getting more and more expensive, and yet they're getting more and more precise. And therefore, you know, the cure for cancer, I think, if it if it's around the corner is going to be in looking at the genetic sequence of the person or the tumor and trying to target that particular genetic problem. So you think the cure to cancer will be personalized, not population? Absolutely. Not. I mean, yeah. I, and I think that probably there will be... the rich be, people will pay for it is what you're getting at, right? Well, that's the question I'm raising. I'm raising the question in the sense that what can we do, you know, policy-wise to make it more available to a lot of people, even though what's going to, you know, the, ultimately the, the, the treatment is going to be more and more personalized. Well, one thing is that, I mean, not on a governmental level, but at least to some extent, you would think that... Uh, Drug companies, if they are at the point where they have got some insane winner that people will pay a lot for, they will at least, I mean, this is not enough, but they will at least provide uh, different price ranges, hopefully, for different, I mean, that would be something that, especially if they have got something that everyone wants and needs. I mean, they've got to make adjustments to some extent, but it's that's not enough. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think, again, you're saying everyone is going to be a bit of a misnomer because right. it'll be the few people for whom this is the exact genetic problem. But um, I think that you know, what I think maybe is, is a better investment is in the tools of um, finding these gene therapies and then the actual specific drug, maybe we can find a way to manufacture that drug much more cheaply, but to develop, say, you know, the capacity for exon skipping as a tool, you know, that we can then use across a number of different diseases, that seems like a good place to put a lot of research and, and development money um, as opposed to, you know, trying to find a drug that's going to have a smaller effect, you know, prolong the life of 100,000 patients, but only by a month. Um, so anyway, well, these no, are some me- of the things. Medicine is going in this personalized uh, direction. And I guess, you know, the bioethicists are probably already tap tap publishing, writing gigantic papers about yeah. how uh, personalized medicine is going to definitely favor some people over other people because they'll be able to, of course, it's already medicine is already highly inequitable in terms of access to it, which is why we have the Affordable Care Act, but it will still be, and it probably always has been, hasn't it? In some yeah. Way. yeah. And, and you know, from, um, from my own personal view, I really think that there's just so much bureaucracy in medicine in the U.S. in particular, you know, coming from Canada even. It just didn't, it just, a lot of administrative costs seem to be pulled away when the government gets involved. But, you know, that's a topic for another show. It also show. has an interesting <laughs> relationship to our interview um, because one of the things that is driving Alan Wiseman to want to write so extensively and so passionately as he does about the carrying capacity of the globe, so to speak, is the fact that medicine has made people able to live so long that um, he says in his book that a lot of people wouldn't live past 40 mm-hmm. you know, before uh, the both medicine and then all of the um, agricultural advances that are just gigantic technological leaps that make us able to produce so much more food puts us in the place where we have seven billion. So let me take you to that interview with him. Sounds great. Alan Wiseman, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you. You've written 
with with Countdown, you've written a kind of amazing, expansive book traveling all around the world to see how its population is booming, how unsustainably we're living, and just some facts for people. We're at 7 billion people now. It only took us 12 years to get there. From 6 billion, we're projected to be at 9 to 10 billion by 2050. So all this in the book comes out right when the United Nations is releasing its report on climate change. What is uh, the relationship between them? Well, the relationship is that the more of us on this planet using energy, demanding it, the more carbon we're pumping up our chimneys and not our exhaust pipes, and the more unpleasant the report is going to be when it comes out. So how do I put this? It's an understatement to say that this topic is controversial. Uh, And especially if someone out there doesn't know a lot about it, I I would think they would tend to shy away from it because they just know the only thing they do know is that it's controversial. So what I want to do is take that very fact head on to start. So why are we and why am I, when I think about this interview before I get to know a little bit, why are we afraid to talk about population? Well, you know, we got to give ourselves a little bit of slack here. We are organisms, We are a species, and there's a whole lot of other species on this planet, and all of them do what comes naturally, which is they make copies of themselves. That's how we ensure the survival of our gene gene pool, of our cultures. And the idea of putting limits on that simply is unheard of except for in human history, it turns out, it's part of the research I did, in times of crisis. It has been done before. And by my reckoning, we're in a time of crisis. The world seems to be bursting at its seams. There are tremendous pressures on the environment. But as you said, population is a loaded topic, and people who otherwise know better, great environmentalists, oftentimes are very, very, very uh, timid about going there. And I decided as a journalist, I should go there and find out, is it really a problem? And so is there anything acceptable that we can do about it? It's, it's a taboo, and yet at the same time, don't you find that when you, everybody, who, if, if they stop to think about it, would say that there has to be some maximum. I mean, surely you cannot have any number of people on the planet. Everyone would certainly agree that there's some number that's too many, right? Well, you would think so. Um, And, you know, this is a question that I raised at the end of my last book, The World Without Us. That book was really not about promoting a world without human beings as a better place. I theoretically wiped us off the planet to show how beautifully the world and swiftly the world could restore itself, renew itself, fill niches that we have inadvertently emptied. And then what I was hoping was that readers would say, wow, is there a way that we can add ourselves back into that picture only in some kind of healthy relationship with the rest of nature? But I learned, it was was towards the end of writing that book, a rather unsettling fact that about every four to four and a half days, we were adding a million people to the planet didn't seem very likely that that would be sustainable. But I left that dangling at the end of the world without us, and I found out, just as you said, a lot of people, most people, sense that there are limits. I expected a lot of blowback on that point, and instead I found myself 
being received warmly by Mormon audiences in Utah, on Catholic radio programs and Southern Baptist radio programs, as well as, you know, the usual NPR suspects. So it seems that, yes, we do sense that something is approaching an intolerable point, or at least an uncomfortable point. Whether it's intolerable or not is one thing that I had to find out in the research of this book. And I want to I want to talk more about your conclusions, but just one more thing, setting the stage a little bit. I mean, the taboo that we've been talking about, the book suggests that it wasn't always as strong of a taboo. I mean, maybe you're trying to reopen this, force the discussion back open, but it, it wasn't always the case. I mean, there was a period, it seems like in the 60s and 70s, where it was very mainstream to talk about this. Well, in the 1960s, the population of the world suddenly doubled in the 20th century, and then it was 50% higher than. There were like more than that. There were three and a half billion people in the end of the 1960s when Paul and Anne Ehrlich wrote The Population Bomb. And it got a lot of people's imagination and became an international bestseller. Now, this was also at the same time that humanity had finally gotten far enough away from the planet to turn around, take a picture of it, and we could suddenly see how unique we were in space, at least as far as we could tell out there. And environmental consciousness suddenly rose to a great new pitch. Uh, you know, it had been smoldering with Aldo Leopold and Rachel Carson, but suddenly it was front burner stuff. And population seemed like a natural part of these things, that there are limits to growth. There was, of course, the famous book by Meadows and Randall about uh, with that title. But then there was a backlash. I mean, first it was, you know, oh, wow, resources are running out. Well, let's go get them while they're getting our good. And then this global marketplace appeared. Trade barriers were struck down. And suddenly it looked like we were surrounded by abundance. And when you're surrounded by abundance, you really go into denial, wanting to believe that anything is ever going to change. It's a tremendous relief. You've been thinking about scarcity and limitations and suddenly, oh, wow, I can have blueberries all year round. You know, this is great. And tremendous resistance set in because anybody who felt that we were going to be having to limit ourselves they weren't just thinking about number of children per family. They were thinking about money because the dirty underside of capitalism, but not just capitalism, every other society virtually that we've had, every other economy that we've had, is that if you define the health of the economy by growth, that means population growth. You always have to have more consumers out there and you have to have more laborers. And frankly, overpopulation is terrific for business because then labor becomes cheap. So that's why there's been an awful lot of resistance. And I, I might as well just bring it up right here. The libertarians are going to have a huge argument with you. Uh, and so let's just say what they're going to say because they're going to say it. And they're going to they're gonna call you a Malthusian. They're going to say you're preaching doom and gloom. They're going to say that human ingenuity always comes through and solves these problems and technology asserts itself and, and helps change the equation and make the projections wrong. Uh, so what, you must be ready for that. I mean, what are you going to say to that? Well, I, I, I have three responses to that. First of all, I think that you're 
unfairly dissing the libertarians because the libertarians are going to like the solution that ultimately comes up. Okay, yeah. And that is letting everybody decide how many children they want, which means giving every woman on earth and then every man because male contraceptives are coming, but giving them universal access to contraception and letting them to decide for themselves. Libertarians don't really have an argument with personal freedom. Also, the part about me preaching, I approach the thing as a journalist. This is all I've ever been. I'm not an advocate for population control or against population control. I examine this thing to see whether it's necessary. Am I convinced by the facts that it is? Yeah, I am. But as with my last book, which I was on a lot of conservative radio programs, I was welcomed on them because they say, you know, this guy isn't preaching. He's just putting the facts out there and letting you readers decide for yourselves. And I think that the facts ultimately you know, add up to the same conclusion. But here's the real response to this idea that human ingenuity is always going to save the day. The example that everybody points to is that Paul and Ann Ehrlich and Malthus before them were proved wrong because human ingenuity came up with a green revolution in the 1960s, right when that book came out, that suddenly through all these crossbred ingenious new strains of wheat and rice and then followed by corn into the mix and saved India and Pakistan and other regions of the world from falling into the famine that they were surely headed to. And that didn't happen. So everybody says that Norman Borlaug, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for founding the Green Revolution, great plant geneticist, he disproved Malthus and Ehrlich forever. The part that they, it's kind of cherry picked because the part that they neglect to add is um, Norman Borlaug's Nobel acceptance speech. He didn't sit there congratulating himself as he was congratulated by others for having saved more lives than any human in history. He said, we have bought the world some time, but unless population control and food, increased food production go hand in hand, we are going to lose this. And Norman Borlaug, until he died about four years ago, was on the board of population groups. He believed that managing our populations was essential to our survival on this planet because he understood that they were that there were limits and the book i think does a really nice job of uh, telling that story and let me just also say i i you know i think it's a highly nuanced book and you are mostly reporting i'm just kind of anticipating <laughs> some of what people are going to say you know, well, well, you know yeah. i had to anticipate that stuff in my reporting too i had to be thinking all the time you know, my premise going into this thing is that I think there might be too many people on Earth. And A, I've got to see, is that in fact true? B, is there a way to find out how many people we should have? The corollary to that, how much nature should do we need to, to preserve in order to uh, guarantee our survival? And then here's some big ones. If we have to stop growing or even shrink back to some kind of sustainable uh, optimum, is there a way to convince all the world's cultures and religions, etc., that it would be in their own self-interest to do so? Or even more, so, is there something in their histories that might show that they are capable or have been capable of embracing, shall we say, refraining from embracing in times of scarcity in the past? And then the last one is the one we've already hinted on, you know, 
how do you design an economy to prosper that doesn't depend on perpetual growth? These are big issues. And that's what I set out to do. So in, in order to, to take the cultural pulse of the world, I had to travel to 21 countries for this. And among the countries I went to were Mexico, which was the home of the Green Revolution for corn and wheat, and to the Philippines, which uh, developed all the improved rice strains. And I interviewed all the scientists there. It's interesting. I'd just been to the Vatican before that. I had some charming conversations, fascinating conversations there. Um, Pope Benedict XVI, you might remember, was considered the green pope because he really had an environmental consciousness. Yet at the same time, he honestly believed, and he said in an encyclical, that we can feed everybody. There's room for everybody on this planet. One of the questions I asked was, by everybody, did the Holy Father mean just Homo sapiens or all these other species too? Because it says in the Bible, go back to the story of Noah, that we can't have a world without all the animals. We have to save them too. And among other things, though, that I heard at the Vatican was that there will be a way to feed everybody. And they showed me these plans for transgenic plants that were now under development at both the centers in Mexico and the Philippines. So when I went there, I said, so how's this going? First of all, everybody trotted out that acceptance speech of Borlaug, and they said population terrifies them because in the next 50 years, the way we're growing right now, they're going to have to produce more food than the entire human race has consumed in our history. That's in the next 50 years. The transgenics that they are working on involve manipulating photosynthesis. They're trying to up it, uh, kickstart it up to 50% higher, you know, jet propellant. So it'll produce, there'll be much more energy in a plant to produce more, yet more food per stock, more grains per stock, and also possibly even give it enough energy to fix its own nitrogen because artificial nitrogen uh, is obviously causing a lot of problems on this planet. And it's, you know, it's fossil fuel derived, uh, both as a feedstock and the energy that it takes to make it. It's got a lot of drawbacks. So I asked them, you know, this is really interesting. How soon do you think we're going to have these things? And everybody said, oh, God, 20, 25, 30 years. You know, it takes a long time to introduce these. And also transgenic plants are not widely accepted in lots of parts of the earth. Most of Europe, you can't even sell them. So in the next 20 to 25 years, we're going to add you know, nearly two and a half billion people to the planet. This is not encouraging. It leads to the question, what is the role uh, of religion in this, it seems to be all over the place, right? In the book, I mean, there's one, you know, I think it's in Niger, you talk to two different religious leaders who, they know each other, they're, they're related or something, they have completely different they're takes, brothers. they're brothers, they have completely different takes on what their, it's Islam, right? What their religion says about this. Well, look, you know, it's really important to keep religion in mind when you're writing about these huge concepts that affect us all, because the majority of people in the world are believers. And uh, to argue with them that religion is wrong, I mean, that's, that's the fastest way to turn anybody off. I find religion to be one of the fascinating things that the human race does. And uh, I think rather than tell people they're wrong, 
I like to explore the religion and see if there's anything in there, again, that can embrace a difficult concept. Now, as we know real well, people can pick up the Bible and justify almost anything. There are lots of contradictions in it, or at least apparent contradictions. Possibly to God, there are no contradictions at all. But in the Quran, one of those imams that you just cited in Niger was talking about the fact that God will always provide, and every child is a gift from God. So they interpret that as saying, you know, you should just have as many gifts as God is going to give you. But there is another surah in the Quran that it's really so clear. It's very difficult to refute. And I met a family planning program in Pakistan that is working solely through the mosques because imams understand that Muhammad says in this surah that every child is, in, is entitled to two years of a mother's milk. You don't want to get pregnant again until you've suckled a child adequately. And that is a formula for birth space. You're not popping out one baby after another after another. Is that enough to turn, you know, to stop at just one or two? Perhaps not. Um, the family planning people in Pakistan were pretty realistic about this. They're hoping to keep Pakistan just down to doubling in the next 30 years uh, and not quadrupling the way it may be going. But does that mean that Islam is incapable of uh, participating in population management if that's what we're going to have to do to keep a sustainable earth? Absolutely not. There are two of the most successful family planning programs on this planet which have their population down below replacement rate, which is, you know, two people, male and a female, having two children replacing themselves, so to speak. Um, one of them is Tunisia, and another one is one that I visited. It's the last country I visited, Iran. And they came up with a family planning program that became the poster program for the United Nations, probably the most humane program ever in the history of the planet, because they, they got down to replacement rate a year faster than China, and it was a totally voluntary program, not coercive at all. So, and these are some examples of, I guess, countries that, that worry you or that are doing it well. I mean, it seems like Pakistan. I was amazed that you said that it is the size of Texas, but it is its population is, you know, potentially going to be more than the U.S. By the year 2030, they're going to have about 395 million people if they keep growing the way they're growing, and we've got 315 right now. And they're the size of Texas. Texas, incidentally, has 26 million. So the, are there other other countries where you feel like, I guess, Pakistan would be one where it seems positioned in a very difficult way to be able to provide for all of the people it's projected to have, and then other countries that are doing really well? Yeah, Pakistan is a pretty terrifying place, unfortunately. It's, it, it, I think it, I titled the chapter when I go to Pakistan, The Bottom, because uh, it's you just see a country that has grown out of control. Uh, for historic reasons, you know, they split off from India. Then there was the um, the Civil War in ultimately a province, which we now call Bangladesh, broke away. And it's always been a fairly weak government. It's a tribal country. Even when you're in a city like Karachi, neighborhoods are run by these warlords and there was warfare going on when I was there. Uh, there were grenade battles in the street. I went to uh, interview a couple of guys who had some World Wildlife Funding 
World Wildlife Fund funding to save the mangroves around Karachi uh, Lagoon. Only the day before I got there, they were found floating in the lagoon, tortured and, and murdered by the local timber mafia. Uh, this is a country that has grown out of control. The converse of that, though, is what Iran did. And they were grown out of control, too. Right after the revolution in 1979, the Islamic Revolution, Saddam Hussein attacked them. They were, you know, in a period of disorganization, having just uh, kicked out the Shah. And the Shah thought they were right for the, or Saddam Hussein thought they were right for the pickings, at least to get his clutches on this oil-rich province that borders uh, Iraq. Well, the Ayatollah asked every fertile female in Iran to get pregnant, to build a 20-million-man army to fight off Iraq, who incidentally was being supplied with armaments, including the materials for nerve gas, which he used against Iran by NATO. So Iran, through wave and wave and wave of human beings, cannon fodder against the Iraqi uh, weaponry and managed to hold it to a stalemate for eight years. At the end of those eight years, when the war finally ended, some people in the Iraqi government in planning and budget, or excuse me, in the Iranian government in planning and budget realized they had a terrible crisis on their hands or were going to have one in about 15 years when all these young kids that had been born grew up. Their economy was never going to be able to employ them all. So they talked to the Ayatollah and they realized that they had to reverse course. And suddenly there were banners all over the country saying one is good, two is enough. They only, the only thing that was mandated in Iran, you could have as many children as you chose, but what was mandated is you had to go to premarital counseling. And that could be in a mosque or it could be in a health center. And among other things, they learned how much it cost to raise a kid, educate a kid, clothe a kid, feed a kid. People got the message. Women, you know, I, I, I talked to OBGYNs when I was in Iran who participated in this thing, and they said it was amazing how fast it happened. Like I said, they turned it around a year faster than China did. The other thing, though, that was really critical to the success of that program is that they encouraged women to stay in school. Because as long as a woman's in school, she tends to defer her childbearing. And today, 60% of university students in Iran are female. They have one to two kids. And that's your solution. I mean, and I, I want to emphasize, you're very opposed to coercive China-type one-child policies. Your solution is empowering women. I think that that is the most acceptable solution all over the planet. You know, there are some countries that have a vested interest apparently in not empowering women, but I think that the tide is turning on that faster than ever. For one thing, social media has been enormously difficult to repress. And women, even in countries like Saudi Arabia, they're getting the picture. I mean, there's this fabulous movie now by a, a Saudi female you know, film director now. Uh, the dam is bursting all over the place. I, I think you know, that gender discrimination is going to rapidly fall by the wayside because it turns out to be a win-win. I mean, one of the things that economists scream about is that, oh, my God, the, if the 
you know, the population shrinks, there's not going to be enough laborers to uh, pay into the pension funds for old people because not as many babies will have been born. You know, if we educate all the women in the world, there is going to be plenty of people who can join the workforce and give an enormously useful contribution with all that female brain power that has not been utilized adequately all across this planet. I don't think we're going to have as big a problem as these hand ringers are suggesting we're going to. The question that arises for me from all this is, you know, not the libertarian concern. I think that you, the fact that you can quote Norman Borlau against them uh, makes you strong, but rather the fact that since nobody talks about this, I mean, not nobody, but since there's a taboo on mainstream discussion of this topic, it seems like something's going to force the issue, right? I mean, what do you, if it's if it's real and people won't talk about it, at some point they're going to be forced to talk about it. What do you foresee happening? Because uh, I can't think that that would be a good <laughs> good way to get there. I think climate change is forcing the issue. Uh, you know, one of the technological fixes that we keep telling ourselves is going to save the day is that we're going to come up with clean energy. Now, to some people, that's clean coal. To other people, uh, it's clean natural gas that we get by shattering the bedrock underneath pastoral villages in Pennsylvania. Um, to other people, it's sun power or it's wind power. But the fact is, you know, I've written about renewable energy a lot, and we should be doing it as much as we possibly can. We should be trying to develop it. But we also have to be realistic. It's going to be very hard with the number of people out there demanding energy. And that's more and more now because nearly more than half the population of the world now lives in urban areas. And I don't care how poor they are. They have a cell phone now and they're plugging in that charger every night or they got a TV, too, oftentimes. And. The demand is just simply going up and up and up. Despite our best efforts, the amount of carbon going up and up and up into the atmosphere is increasing every year. And we're not going to at any time soon replace all that with renewable energy. There was a brilliant paper written by Nathan Mervold, who is uh, the former chief science officer of Microsoft, and uh, Ken Caldera, who is one of our greatest physicists. I think he's at Carnegie now. Yeah, Stanford, uh, yeah. Yeah, and they pointed out that the, you know, there's sort of a, a carbon amortization that takes place. Even when you're building renewable energy plants, you know, like solar or wind, and it takes about four decades or so when you factor in all of the construction, the mining, uh, the maintenance the lubrication, all the stuff that is required before you start really getting the payback of, you know, clean energy from these things. In other words, to build all of these renewable plants for zero emissions energy, even if we knew how to do it on a scale that, you know, that could satiate the human race, uh, we're going to pump even more carbon dioxide into the air for a few decades before we start saving things. So I think that given the changes that we are seeing now, climatologically, which are starting to gnaw at the coastlines. I mean, ask the people in New Jersey and New York what happened to them recently, and 
the chances are, according to all the models, we're going to be seeing more and more of this. All these so-called 500-year or 100-year floods, they're coming every five years. You know, or when I was in Niger, they used to talk about the 10-year drought, then became the five-year drought, then became the three-year drought. And then for the last three years, it hasn't ended yet. So we all know that these weather events are coming closer and closer together and they're becoming more severe. And when we start losing coastline, because now the every model is showing that the seas are rising faster than ever before and that seas could rise three feet because, you know, coastlines go way in. That land stays close to sea level in many places in the world for quite a distance. It's now being revised to six feet, and that's by the end of this century. You know, if we can't control adequately the amount of carbon we're putting up there, then we have to start thinking about controlling the number of people who are emitting that carbon. And that doesn't mean going out there and culling the human race, but it means simply, in a like Joseph in the Bible, when he saw that, you know, that famine coming, refraining from embracing so much, so we limit ourselves to a reasonable number of one or two kids max for a time until we come down to a population that isn't maxing out the atmosphere, that isn't then acidifying the seas because that overloaded atmosphere gets absorbed by the sea and it starts pushing in the direction of of carbonated water. I think this is probably the wake-up call. Well, let me just ask one last question then. I mean, so then is this book a, a story of hope or a story of despair? Because, the okay, the climate problem is not easy to solve, but neither is the population problem. So, I mean, you look out, what do you, do you see the scenario looking good or do you see blowing past 10 billion easily? I mean, or, or are you not sure? You know, every, every organism in the history of this planet that's exceeded its resource base eventually suffers a population crash. And we technologically have managed to stretch our resource bases, but something that stretches ultimately snaps. And as the scientists told me you know, in the Green Revolution Centers, they can't keep doing it forever. They all thanked me for coming and raising the question of population because it's so important to them. Uh, there's no way they're going to be able to produce all that food. And I don't think there's any way that we're going to make it to 11 billion because either we're going to bring down our population gracefully by managing it ourselves or nature's going to do it to us. And it's going to be kind of brutal. And I really don't want that to happen. Fortunately, unlike, you know, these magical forms of renewable energy that we're looking for, that will instantly solve everything. And by the way, they won't because we'll still have enormous traffic problems, enormous sprawl problems. Cities will still be covering the best farmland that cities grew up next to. Uh, you know, clean energy is not going to solve all our problems. But reducing our presence on this planet, leaving room for the rest of nature, leaving breathing space, leaving space in the atmosphere to absorb our exhaust. That could work, and we have the technology for that. Contraception is a fairly benign technology. It releases some hormones into the ecosystem, and that's a concern. I was talking to the head of a pharmaceutical company about that last night. But the organophosphates that we use in agriculture are many, many, many times worse and more numerous. And as I show in the book, we're improving this contraceptive technology all the time, and we should. You know, medical technology is great, 
every one of us over 40, that's me, wouldn't be here if it wasn't for it. And I can't possibly you know, argue to readers that, oh, finding a cure for malaria is actually counterproductive because then more people will survive and they're going to beget more people. You can't argue against medical technology, but you can talk about having a reasonable number of kids that you can safely provide for and that can keep your world a safe place. Well, look, I think it's a very provocative and fascinating book, and you really document it all well. And I think just going to different parts of the world and seeing what's happening is going to open people's eyes when they read it. So, Alan, uh, thank you so much for being with us on Inquiring Minds. Well, thank you. And and let me just add, if I didn't have hope that we could do this, I wouldn't. This was a lot of work. I exhausted myself doing it. And I could have stayed home and just gotten drunk all the time. Now, I believe that we can still do this. You know, we have this incredible information age right now. We're in touch with more knowledge than anybody's ever been. Now we got to do is we got to kick it up into an age of wisdom and apply that knowledge. Great interview, Chris. Uh, A lot of fascinating things that he brings up. And, you know, certainly there's a lot of scariness that comes out of what he says, um, fear for our future. And I can see why this would be directly relevant to the global warming conversation that is going to dominate the news. Yes, but people don't talk about this side of it, and he makes a pretty good case that we ought to. One of the things that really resonated with me as a woman is this idea that if you put the power of contraception back into the hands of women, that a lot of this problem might solve itself. Uh, You know, I think that's exactly right, because at least from my own experience and from the papers that I've read and some of the research that I've done, certainly women are becoming more empowered even in the third world. And when they do, they don't want to be tied to just having children as their only role in life. You know, they want to go out and do other things. And so if they can control how many children they have and when they have them, then they can actually build, you know, have careers, some have some kind of a job, you know, do a small, um, have a small business of sorts. And in that way, you know, not only do you solve the overpopulation problem to a certain extent, but you also empower these, these women to provide for their community and maybe help out some of the more impoverished nations. So yeah, so in that sense, it ends up being he doesn't leave you without a solution. He does give you hope. So, <laughs> Yeah, and I think, I think he's exactly right. I mean, you know, he's not the first person to make that point, but I also think that it's something that's really worth underlining. So that's it for this week, and thank you for listening to another episode, our second episode of Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. And you can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that's a partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, and Wired. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Chris Mooney. And I'm your other host, Indre Viscontis. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. 
It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.